Good morning. Uh, let me get settled in here. Everyone knows what we're celebrating today, right? Palm Sunday. When Jesus rode in Jerusalem on a? Louder than that. Come on. And everyone was screaming? Oh, you guys are... Okay, we're done here. Let's go. Now, many of us, many of us know this account from the scripture. And uh, if you were wondering what everyone was yelling donkey about, don't worry. Um, there's not going to be a test at the end. Okay. Um, but when I thought about, you know, as I was thinking about Palm Sunday, you know, it's very clear. There's uh, a lot of imagery in my mind when it comes to Palm Sunday. Um, and then it seems like things get blurry for Holy Week for me. And then I know what happens at the Last Supper. And so maybe some of you feel the same way. Where you're, I'm not quite sure what happened on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Some things happened. And then he had a supper with his disciples towards the end of the week. And that's where the story picks back up in my mind. And so um, considering that's what I think about Holy Week, I thought I'd spend some time looking at what did happen on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So hopefully if you're like me and Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday aren't quite as clear to you as Sunday and Thursday, then maybe this would be towards you as well. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for a warm building that is dry to gather together as your people because there's something that happens when your church gathers and you dwell in the midst of us that is different than when happens when we dwell with you individually and we get to sing your praises and hear the testimony of others singing your praises. We get to hear from your word together that we may learn together who you are and the things that you want to do in each of our lives. And so, Father, we ask that you would be put on display this morning and that your son um, would be magnified. And we know that this is the hope and will of your spirit, and so we trust his work as well. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so as I was considering Palm Sunday, and as I looked more into Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of Holy Week, I thought about the 1976 game of Atari called Breakout. You all know what I'm talking about. This game, right? Where the ball is flying at warp speed and the little thing is trying to uh, deflect it back. Because this is what it was for Jesus' ministry during this week. It, it actually patterned all of his earthly ministry. Jesus' earthly ministry was patterned like this, where he would interact with his disciples, those that were following him around, and he would teach them. And a lot of times this happened up in the Galilee region. And so there would be his 12, even the three closest disciples, but then there'd be even larger crowds that would follow him around, and he'd be teaching them. But then on a yearly basis, he would go to Jerusalem and interact with the religious leaders there. 
And so there was this pattern of kind of turn towards his disciples, teaching them what it means, the kingdom of heaven, what's this mean? And then turning towards religious leaders and addressing them. And there's that pattern throughout Jesus' earthly ministry. It was equally split between these two groups. Back and forth, back and forth through that. But now in this last week, this holy week, that pattern would be the same but compressed. If I'm going to actually use Luke's words to describe this. In Luke um, 21... 37 and 38, we have it up there. Luke, this is how Luke summarizes it. It says, And every day he was teaching in the temple. That would be turned towards the religious leaders. But at night he went out and lodged on the Mount of Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And so this last week of Jesus' earthly life was spent in that same pattern of ministry but it was compressed. It was daily instead of monthly or yearly. He would go to the temple into Jerusalem and then come back out of Jerusalem and speak with his disciples privately. These are the words that encompass this last week, and these are the days which are going to be our focus for the morning. So we're going to start on Sunday, Palm Sunday. Um, We're going to start as... Jesus is going down on this donkey into the Kidron Valley from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem sits in like a bowl of other mountains, and it's itself a mountain. And so you ever think, like, you know those orange squeezy things, like you squeeze the orange juice out? That's what I think of when I think of the geography of Jerusalem. There's this one mountain, and then surrounding it is other mountains. And one of those mountains is the Mount of Olives, or the... Um, And so the Kidron Valley sits between the Mount of Olives and Jerusalem. And so Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley and drowned out by all the praise, right? All the, the crowds around him, Hosanna, blessed is the Lord. All between, in, in the midst of all that praise, there's Pharisees there. And some of the Pharisees catch Jesus' eye. And they look at him, and they, they kind of get his attention. They say, Rabbi, you know, Jesus, you know, I forget what they say exactly. Um, but they basically say, you've got to rebuke your disciples. You have to rebuke your disciples. Why did they want him to rebuke? Because all these people were praising, they were giving Jesus praise for only a way reserved for God's Messiah. Because we know that Hosanna passage is a prophecy. They know that, and people are saying it, and Jesus isn't rebuking, so he's receiving this praise reserved only for the Messiah. Jesus lets the Pharisees know that he could silence the disciples, but then the very rocks would cry out. So the Pharisees give up, and speaking to one another, they say, look, the world has gone after him. We are gaining nothing. So Jesus comes down the Kidron Valley, then back up in Jerusalem, he comes into Jerusalem and arrives, and arrives there, and in spite of all the joyous shouting, in, in, in spite of all the joyous praise, he is troubled. He's weeping. As he looks upon Jerusalem, this eternal capital for Israel, it's Jerusalem called to be a city on a hill that would point all other nations to God, creator, creator God and king of kings, 
And yet he, looking at Jerusalem, he knows that her blindness will lead to her destruction. And he's weeping over it. But that Sunday is late, it's getting late, and so he heads back the way he came to Bethany on the Mount of Olives. So we're going to move over to Monday now. First thing, Monday morning, Jesus is heading back into Jerusalem, same, same, same way he went in the, on Sunday, except this time there's a lot less pomp. Okay, There's no people yelling, Hosanna, there's no donkey, none of that stuff. He's heading on the same path, less pomp. And there would be action he's preparing for. He knows that there's going to be action in the temple, but first a bite to eat. And he sees a fig tree off in the distance, and he wanders over to find nothing to eat, and he's always aware of an opportunity to teach his disciples, ever aware. And so he curses the fig tree, and he curses it because it's promising fruit, because it's in leaf, but it's not delivering on that fruitfulness. And so he curses the fig tree in earshot of the twelve. And he would use this picture on the way to Jerusalem to teach his disciples as he arrives in the city. Because as he arrives in the city, the first thing to come into his presence is the chief priests and the elders. And as he makes his way into the temple, he sees all this exchange happening over sacrifices. And we learn about what's called the cleansing of the temple. Does everyone know this? Cleansing of the temple? Where he's in the temple courts flipping tables. John would put it that he's made a cord, like a, like a bullwhip of a cord, and he's driving out people like cattle. Get out of here. You're making uh, God's house a den of robbers. And he drives out the hypocrites who are making a quick dollar on those that are seeking to worship God. The ones called to mediate, these religious leaders, the ones called to mediate between God and man are instead abusing that calling and ripping the people off. Matthew, known for making, distinct, or making contrasts right next to each other to prove a point, he puts even a sharper edge on this temple cleansing by right next to them noting the rightful proclamation of the children in the temple, of the children. The children in the temple are crying out also, Hosanna. They heard mom and dad crying it out yesterday, and they're in the temple, and they see the same man, and so they repeat and listen and, and, and rightfully proclaim those same things. The religious leaders of the society weren't comprehending who Jesus was, but the insignificant children were. And so this, is all, this all takes place on Monday, and again, he leaves the city. The city's left in astonishment. It, the gospel accounts clearly say that. The, the city is left in astonishment, and Jesus and his disciples, once again, head back into the Kidron Valley and back out to the Mount of Olives for Monday evening. Tuesday. This is Tuesday morning of Holy Week. And now Jesus and his disciples make their way through the Kidron Valley and back up to the city. But this time, there's a lot more worshipers on the way. The city is swelling in size. And so people from out of town, from 
other parts of the nation of Israel, from other parts of even the nations, are making their way into Jerusalem. And so the, that way down into the Kidron Valley is there's other people along the way today. They're, making, they're also making their way into the temple area because of the Passover feast that is coming. And this time, he's going to now directly interact with the chief priest. And yesterday, he just kind of made a scene, just through you know, flipping tables. But now he's going to talk directly with the chief priests and elders. Because as soon as he gets there, they immediately lay their cards on the table. Here's, here's the game we're playing. We're going to challenge him on his authority. We're going to challenge Jesus on his authority. Where does he get this authority to receive the praises reserved only for God? To heal the lame and the blind as he did. To flip tables and drive out people from the temple courts. Where does he get the authority to teach in the temple without being an official priest or a scribe taught in their school? Tell us where this authority comes from, they say. Who gave you this authority, they say. And they set a trap that they think will trip up Jesus, but they forget the words of their very own Solomon who says, whoever digs a pit will himself fall into it. And so they set the, they dig the pit, and Jesus watches them fall into it as he responds to them. He says, I'll tell you what authority I do this if you can prove to me that you recognize authority. So he questions them on John's authority. He says, where does, where does John the Baptist get his authority? Is it from heaven or is it from man? If the chief priest didn't know if John had authority... How can they know Jesus has authority? And the chief priests, they don't know if John has authority. They're really concerned about what other people think about John's authority, but they don't know themselves if John has authority. And so he uses, he, 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 he stays true to his word. He doesn't tell them where he gets his authority because they didn't prove that they know what authority is. But then he then he kind of redirects, and he, and he gives them three parables all about hypocrisy and authority. He gives them three parables. One parable is about two sons. Maybe you remember this. One son gave the father who gave him direction. He gave the, he gave the father lip service. Yeah, Dad, I'm going to do it. But then he, then he didn't do it. He rebelled. One son, the other son rebelled immediately. I'm not going to do that. But then had a change of heart and actually went through and obeyed the Father. And he puts that before them as a way that they can see themselves. He gives them another parable about the wicked tenants. You know, the tenants who were in control of a land from a master that lived not on the land. And the master would send people, send other servants to go collect on the fruitfulness of the land, and they would just kill the servants. Then the, the master sent his very own son, the heir of the land, to collect, and they said, this is the heir, let's kill him. And they would kill the, the, the son of the master. And then he gives them a last parable, the parable of a wedding feast. And the focus there is that God's generosity 
is not thwarted by the rejection of the establishment. If the establishment rejects him, that doesn't thwart God's generosity because as the parable of the wedding feast shows, his invitation extends even to the destitute of the world. If the, if the establishment won't accept me, we'll go and tell the people on the byways to come and they can be invited in. After this, the Pharisees need a break to regroup. So, like our favorite sport of wrestling, they tag team, they tag team the Sadducees in. This, are you allowed to show this at church? Uh, yeah. How many people were at one of those events in their lifetime? We're going to have to talk with you afterwards. Oh, just kidding. Wrestling's great. Can I take a quick story? We were in Nepal, and um, our friend Kevin Talixon was speaking with a guy on a bus, uh, uh, a brother in Christ in the bus, and he was asking about wrestling, and Kevin was saying, yeah, it's a great show, you know, they're really good actors. He's like, he thought wrestling was real, and he was so distraught by Kevin's words. Anyway. <laughs> The Sadducees, they, they tag in the Sadducees, a different group of religious leaders, and they have a trap that's ready to go too. They say, we're gonna, the Sadducees, they don't believe in the resurrection, and so that's where they're going to try and get Jesus at. Um, so they make up this almost comical story about uh, a woman who marries a brother and then that brother dies, and then she marries the other brother, and then that brother dies, and it keeps going up to seven brothers. And they're asking about whose, whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And they're just trying to trip up Jesus about resurrection type of information. And so Jesus, again, he, this is what I love about it. He, he'll address your silly question, but then he'll also address the motive behind the question. And so he, he starts debunking their, relig their ridiculous scenario by teaching them that marriage doesn't go into eternity. It's a picture. It's designed to show us our relationship to Christ and his relationship to the church. And so that's what it's earthly for. And so it doesn't last into eternity because we're in fellowship with him, in marriage with him. But then he starts addressing their motives as well. And so quickly, the Sadducees tag the Pharisees back in. They move. And so, the, you know, I imagine as the Sadducees came forth to address Peter or address Jesus, the Pharisees went over and had a little huddle, you know, like the sport of volleyball when they huddle after every single point. And like, you talk about it before the game. Um, they huddle after every single point. So the Pharisees go over and huddle. They break the huddle. They come back and they're going to talk about what they know, the law. And so they challenge Jesus on answering, what is the most important commandment? And once again, he turns the table back on them and, ask, and he asks them a question which reveals more silence as they are unable to answer him. I'm not going into each of these scenarios and I'm hoping that you will this week. But we come to the, you know, towards the end of Tuesday and the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, they had all tried to shake Jesus, shake him up. 
the Pharisees and Sadducees tried to silence him. But it was each of them, each of these groups, the ones adamantly against his authority, that were left shaken and silenced. Matthew twenty-two forty-six says, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. This, this feels like a moment in the gospel account where Jesus has put the nail in the coffin as his, he's going to have more interactions when that, that, uh, that trial comes up, that unfair trial of him comes up. He's going to have more interactions with these groups, but this is the last interaction that's a back and forth, like a, in, in front of everyone, a back and forth. The nail is in the coffin. There are no more questions. And although they spent, these religious leaders, although they spent most of Tuesday digging themselves out of the pits that they themselves set as traps, there is one bright spot for them. Because one of Jesus' disciples had approached them in the temple and asked them to set up a meeting tomorrow, and he had a look on him as one of a betrayer. And so there is a bright spot for these leaders. And it's been an eventful day on this Tuesday, but it's far from over. If we remember back to that Atari brick breakout game, the brick breaker game, he's bouncing from towards the religious leaders, towards those in the temple, and he's going to now turn on his way back to the Mount of Olives to his disciples. And he's going to warn them, on his way there and as he gets there about the woes that are to come upon the scribes and the Pharisees. And he's going to place this, this presentation of the wrath to come for the scribes and the Pharisees, he's going to place that, again, right next to a good example. He's going to place it next to the example of a widow who is in her Poorness offering everything that she has. As he, you know, as he looks out, as him and the disciples are together and they're maybe getting ready to leave, he looks over and he sees the widow putting her two her penny into the the offering. And he's going to say, and he, so he's teaching about the scribes and the Pharisees who have all this ability to offer and to give to the Lord, and yet don't do it. And yet, the lowliest one gives everything. And he puts those things next to each other. And as he, as he makes his way out of the temple area, you know, we're the, um, the, if you ever go to Israel, maybe you come on the next trip that is going there, um, one of the walls is still, you know, to a degree standing. And um, even that, in its in its brokenness is still amazing and you see you imagine it's all all its glory as they're leaving they're one of the disciples is like look at this these amazing buildings and jesus never always looking for an opportunity to teach always he begins to talk to him about what we would now call the olivet discourse what are the things to come and he's going to move in that way and he's going to teach them about not only things to come in the near future, the temple being torn down, 
but also things to come in the far future. And he's going to use these teachings, and he's also going to add some parables about the ten virgins and the, the, um, uh, the, uh, the talents. He's going to put these teachings about being ready for the coming back of Jesus, for the coming back. How are you to be ready? How are you to know these things are coming, and how are you to be ready for their coming? And he's going to speak these things on his way back up to the Mount of Olives. Excuse me one second. And so with that, with this teaching on the things that come and being ready for the things to come, the Tuesday evening ends, and they're back up in Bethany. And so Monday, Tuesday, and then Wednesday is mostly silent. We imagine this is the day that uh, Judas took a break, like he went back into the, into the city to speak to the, the, um, those that would be paying him for his betrayal. We imagine that um, uh, Wednesday was spent, uh, the Sanhedrin planning what they're going to do next. And I might say the most striking aspect of these three days leading up to the betrayal, up to the abandonment, up to the trial, up to the crucifixion is just how unstriking they actually are. These sound like interactions that you would read in the rest of the Gospels. You might have heard some of the, the, the things that I've been saying and be like, oh, I didn't know that was in that week. These interactions are all over, not just at the end of Jesus. He was always preparing people for what's to come. He was always ministering to those that were needy or, or at the hand of the religious leaders. He was always doing these things. And so with kind of that strange feeling of there was nothing really different about these, what do we take from these last interactions? What do we learn from these last interactions that were publicly with the religious leaders and privately with the disciples? I came up with two, but I imagine that as I've been sharing, the Lord's been speaking to you, and maybe you have some better ones. I'd love to hear them after. But these are my two encouragements that I found that are in Christ from these. The first is, Jesus knew the cross was looming. Did he see Judas in the corner of his eye speaking to those chief priests, setting up that secret meeting? He knew betrayal was on the horizon. He knew physical pain beyond measure was there looming. He knew searing loneliness and worst of all, a separation from his father. Separation he had never experienced before as the sins of the world were bestowed on his, fa- on his shoulders. He knew all this was to come, yet with the shadow of all that darkening his near future, he stayed on the mission that he had from the beginning. With all of that ahead, if there was a time to ease up on the religious leaders, it would have been right now, this week. Take it easy. You know, just back off a little bit. But he didn't do that. Instead, his message didn't change. His message that I am the Christ. And whether you are on the receiving end of the hypocrisy of religious leaders, 
and oppressed by them in a way, or you're on the giving end of it, and you are the ripper-offer. Is that a word? Either way, if you're the one receiving it or the one giving it, you are invited to look to me, to follow me, to be taught by me, to be forgiven by me. That was his message, and he stayed true to it, even when all of it was looming. Like Noah in the shadow of the ark. I love this picture. Ark, you know, the, he's built this huge ark, and, he, and people are um, laughing at Noah about his shenanigans. And in the shadow of the ark, Noah, it says he was proclaiming righteousness to a dying world. And just like that, Jesus, with that ark shadowing his life, speaks words of eternal life and how to live at the ready for his return. That was his message, and he stayed true to it with all of the hard that was looming. And the second comfort that we take is just as his message stayed the same, so did his heart towards those that were listening. His heart stayed the same towards his people. These interactions, I think, make it clear that Jesus' motive is love. His motive is love. Even though some of these interactions are hard, the motive for those interactions is love. In this last week, he takes on the carefully crafted arguments of the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Sanhedrin, confronting them on the very thing that is keeping them from him and keeping their listeners from them. The means of the confrontation is to the end goal of reconciliation. I'll say that again. The means of the confrontation that he has in the temples is towards the means of reconciliation. Not only for them, like he told the lawyer that asked him about the, the greatest commandment, he said, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. You're, you're close. He wanted reconciliation. And just as he kind of raised up this widow giving everything she had or the children screaming Hosanna, he wanted that confrontation to encourage them that he's coming for reconciliation. That's why he came. The means of confrontation is to the end goal of reconciliation. During these days that we looked at from this special week, um, the, the week that we call Holy Week, excuse me, The Jewish nation would have been pouring in Jerusalem. We mentioned that, right? People from all over the nation, all over the nations that celebrate the Passover are coming in, and the city would swell, some say five times as in population. And they'd be preparing for the yearly festival for the Passover. As all these, um, we'll say pilgrims, maybe, it's a good word, as all these, don't think about the bucket, though, okay? Like the, the, um, the um, buckle, the buckle on the hat. Don't think about that. All these people coming into Jerusalem, as they approach, they'd be singing the songs of ascent from our book of Psalms that we have. And, they'd, and as they come in, they're, they're climbing the, this mountain of Jerusalem, and they'd be singing these songs. And together, corporately, they'd be reminding themselves 
of God's miraculous deliverance of Israel from the oppression of Egypt at the first Passover. That was the point of this festival, to corporately remind them of God's deliverance of Israel at the first Passover. And like Jesus here on Palm Sunday, Moses too had a similar triumphal entry. You know, Moses and Aaron are out in the wilderness preparing to go back to Egypt to deliver Israel from Egypt, from Pharaoh. And when they get there, they tell the nation, the the people there, you know, God sent us and he's going to deliver us. And the people, it says in Exodus, I think chapter 3, they were praising God for this. They loved that he was here. He, Moses had his own little triumphal entry as he was welcomed back. And the people believed him and praised God for sending their deliverer. But Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater Moses, Jesus knows that the, that the deliverance from a deeper slavery was at hand. The slavery to sin nature that puts us in enmity with God. Jesus knew that the wrath of God could be ransomed with a sacrifice. But Moses gave instructions for a spotless lamb. But instead of the instructions for a spotless lamb that Moses would give, Jesus would be the sacrifice. He would be the spotless lamb. So that the payment for the sin wouldn't be a yearly payment, it'd be an eternal payment. Like Moses, Jesus would prepare his listeners too. Moses did some preparing for his listeners. Jesus would also do that preparation for instruction and warning. And why did he do that? so that they could be saved by the only way deliverance was being offered. Moses gave very specific instructions on how you are to be passed over, how your household is to be passed over. And Jesus, too, at the end of his days, is giving very special uh, uh, instructions so that they would know the way of deliverance. It's a narrow way, a way through the waters of baptism and a way through the death of the old man and being born again to a resurrected new life. Um, I'm going to invite the worship team up and you guys can come up. And as we read, I'm going to read God's word in closing. And then we're going to worship together in response to the things that we've heard from him today. And I don't know about you, but I come every Sunday fully expecting that the Lord is going to speak to me because he promises that he is with two or more disciples, two or more followers. He promises that he is there in the midst. He promises that his word does not return void. And he promises that his will is that we would be sanctified. And so I come every Sunday fully expecting the Lord to speak to me personally and to us corporately. And so with that trust that I have, I fully trust that the Lord has been moving on each of your hearts.
in, 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 a, in a very specific way. And so as, we, as I read and then we close in song, I just want to encourage you to act in faith towards how you feel the Lord is leading you. Okay? He is your shepherd. I am not your shepherd. Jesus Christ is the shepherd, the good shepherd. And he wants to lead you to green pastures and still waters. He wants to set a table before his, be, with you before the enemies. That even in the presence of the hardest of circumstances, you can have communion with God at a table of fellowship. That's what he wants to do. And so I encourage you to act in faith towards him. If you feel like you would like prayer, one of the, the, the prayer counselors are going to be up here, and you can come and pray with them. If you feel like you just want to ask the person next to you to pray with you over something, I encourage you to do that during the song, after the song. But respond in faith. At some, uh, let's stand as we read. Let's stand. At some point on Palm Sunday, the day that we're celebrating today, or the next day, Monday, at one of, the, one of those days, Sunday or Monday, Jesus said these words to his disciples in John chapter 12. It was specifically Philip and Andrew that he was speaking to. He said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And because Jesus said those words, we, those, that have us, those of us that have trusted in that sacrifice, can say these words from Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, but we believe that we will also live with Christ. Father, we thank you for that truth, and as we worship you, we'd ask that you would move amongst us, and we would magnify your name through our response in faith. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.